Chapter 4 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Model School and Its Penalty. Returning home from St. Croix in the late spring of 1831, Miss Dix, in the ensuing autumn, entered seriously on the work of establishing the kind of model boarding and day school for girls which should satisfy the high-wrought ideal that filled her mind. Once again she found herself settled in the old Dick's mansion, her now well-grown brothers with her, and health sufficiently improved to warrant, she felt, any degree of prodigal expenditure of precious life-force. Flinging herself with her old intensity into the work, rising before the sun and rarely in bed till after midnight, no long time passed before she made her mark and secured from prominent families in Boston and from distant places as many pupils as she could take in charge. Health or no health, there were two grand objects she was now indomitably set on effecting. First, she would achieve pecuniary independence. To the full, she appreciated the value of a moderate competence to anyone who would be free to carry out self-chosen plans in life. The misery and humiliation entailed by impracticality and shiftlessness had been from childhood burned into her soul. Thus, from the outset, she showed herself a superior business manager. Generous to the last extreme in giving away money, her school containing always a number of non-paying pupils, and a charity school in addition being largely maintained by her, she nonetheless held tenaciously to the idea that the money she gave away should be her own money. To the end of life she entertained a sovereign contempt for people who got their living out of benevolent enterprises, and selfishly foisted themselves in the holy name of charity, as an added burden on the community. Along, however, with this determination to secure personal independence, there went the resolve to subordinate every desire for leisure and exemption from pain to working for what she deemed the highest good of her pupils. No heart of the day shared more fully than hers the enthusiastic faith of that great awakening in Massachusetts, which, fostered especially by the glowing visions of the future for humanity, of the preaching of Dr. Channing, was prophesying the advent of a new day in education and reform. The dignity of human nature, its power under God, to rise to heights never before dreamed of but in the visions of saints, this had been Dr. Channing's inspiring battle cry. In all this, her own ardent aspirations had been still farther stimulated by the flaming eloquence of Dr. Channing's colleague, Rev. Ezra Stiles Gannett, 
a man equally ready with herself to trample the body underfoot and live a daily sacrifice in infirmity and pain to the cause he fervidly cherished. For the realization of these prophetic hopes, the place of all others for work now seemed to Miss Dix the school. She did not yet know herself for the commanding powers that were slumbering in her. Coming events alone were to reveal these, but in the school could be gathered together the children unspotted from the world, and in the susceptible soil of their natures could be sown the seed of the coming glorious harvest. Nonetheless, it must be frankly admitted that she could never fully enter into the experience of average children, their exuberance of purely animal life, their suffering under concentration and restraint, their utter immaturity of intellect and conscience. To themselves, they seemed here on earth to enjoy the fun life was made for. To her, to prepare to become the mothers, teachers, daughters of charity of the world. Alas, she had never been an average child herself. She had been premature child-mother, premature battler with the stern problem of life, and so, out of the lack of this essential experience, was to grow the one grave drawback to the character of the influence she exerted in the school. Great and salutary as was that influence, and as it is, even to this day, recognized to have been by the decided majority of her pupils who are still living. The arrangements of the school, writes a former pupil of it, were very primitive. No desks for the girls, only a long table through the middle of the room at which we sat for meals and at which it was very inconvenient to write. The studies, as was common in those days, embraced a rather limited range of subjects. Spelling, arithmetic, and composition were rigorously and accurately taught, as well as geography and history, while a French teacher gave the only instruction in any other language but English, unless exception be made in favor of a little elementary Latin. Perhaps far more than in most schools of the period, attention was paid to the teaching of physics and natural history. The main stress, however, was laid on the formation of moral and religious character. Here lay the overpowering consideration with the teacher. No mere acquisition of knowledge was of any value in her eyes in comparison with a longing to dedicate it to the service of humanity. In this respect, the conduct of the school was well-nigh monastic. Unceasing effort was paid to leading the children to the formation of habits of introspection. The kingdom of good and of evil within the probing its depths, and the recognition of the eternal distinction between the two. This was to her the one shape of knowledge that made the turning point of the soul in time and in eternity. 
and so on the mantel-shelf of the study-room there lay always a certain shell, a kind of ear of God, into which, daily if possible, letters were to be dropped, recording the results of careful self-examination, letters to which Miss Dix would sit up till after midnight writing answers. Moreover, to this was later on added a Saturday evening provision for private interviews of the most solemn and searching nature between pupils and teacher, a kind of Protestant version of the Roman Catholic system of the confessional. That too great strain was thus put on the sensibilities and conscience of the more earnest children by this close spiritual touch with so morally exacting a nature, there can be little question. And yet, in reply to minute inquiries from the writer of this biography, the majority of the still-living pupils insist that, while overstimulated at the time, they were nonetheless spiritually revolutionized by these seasons of close personal contact, and that to her they owe the best they have ever done in life. Others, however, seem to retain none but painful and even bitter memories of their early relation with one the stress of whose immense demand was farther accentuated by the inevitable bodily penalties of exhaustion, sleeplessness, and pain entailed on her by overstrain. Among the miscellaneous papers left behind after the death of mystics, there are large bundles of child letters of this period, which throw a varied, sometimes amusing and sometimes pathetic, light on the working of this system of education the Shell Post Office Department of it especially. These letters are but straws, indeed. But straws show how the wind blows or the current sets, and so have a value greater than their own. Here, then, is one of them, from a little girl, highly pleased, evidently, at the prospect of spiritual treasures in store for her. The italics so freely used in these letters are retained as too indicative of emphatic states of mind to be spared. Quote, Please write me a note, dear teacher. I send you the paper in hopes that you will. Do please. The casket is ready. Please fill it with jewels. Your child, Molly. End quote. Next comes a letter from a youthful aspirant manifestly bent on putting bark and iron into a flagging will. Quote, you know, dear Miss Dix, that I told you just now that I could not do my composition. And isn't it singular I just read in Martha's letter Borodil's quotation from Mr. Gannett's sermon? An iron will can accomplish everything. Dear Miss Dix, I will have this iron will, and I will do and be all you expect from your child. End quote. 
A third example summons vividly before the mind a little girl so actually seething with ambition to succeed that the power of language fails and has to be eked out with a bristling abatis of exclamation points. Quote, Auntie, sweet, very dear, sweet Auntie, you asked me just now who I was writing to. I did not answer you on purpose. Auntie, Auntie, do you think I shall, shall get my Bible? I want to be a good girl so. Don't you want me to? I know you do, 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 Auntie. Now, Auntie, I want to be good very much. And I'll tell you what. Let you and I never speak together but write little notes all the time. Tomorrow morning, I want to find a little note on my pillow if you are not busy. Goodbye, dear auntie. Quote. Surely this last letter gives evidence of a child nature much more enthusiastically stimulated than overawed by the Shell post office system. The two next, however, are characteristic specimens of the more pathetic ones, of which there were many. 1. Quote, you wished me to be very frank with you and tell you my feelings. I feel the need of someone to whom I can pour forth my feelings. They have been pent up so long. You may perhaps laugh when I tell you I have a disease, not of body, but of mind. This is unhappiness. Can you tell me of anything to cure it? If you can, I shall indeed be very glad. I am in constant fear of my lessons. I am so afraid I shall miss them. And I think that if I do, I shall lose my place in the school, and you will be displeased with me. Quote. 2. Quote. I thought I was doing very well, until I read your letter. But when you said that you were rousing to greater energy, all my self-satisfaction vanished. For if you are not satisfied in some measure with yourself, and are going to do more than you have done, I don't know what I shall do. You do not go to rest until midnight, and then you rise very early. End quote. These juvenile effusions sufficiently indicate the varied nature of the effect produced by Miss Dix's personality and methods on children of different temperaments. To them may be added an extract from a letter written nearly sixty years later. Quote, I was in my sixteenth year, 1833, writes to Miss Dix's biographer, Mrs. Margaret J. W. Merrill of Portland, Maine, when my father placed me at her school. She fascinated me from the first, as she had done many of my class before me. Next to my mother, I thought her the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. She was in the prime of her years, tall and of dignified carriage, head finely shaped and set, with an abundance of soft, wavy brown hair. 
for a period of five years, the school continued in full tide of success. The unflinching will of Miss Dix, dragging her frail body through the weariness and suffering involved. At last, however, in the spring of 1836, she broke down utterly. Hemorrhages recurred. The old pain in the side seemed fixed, as though a splintered lance were there, and her exhausted nerves would respond no farther. She had achieved her cherished ends, though at a fearful cost. Her labors had secured for her the independence of a modest competence. She had made a home for, educated, and embarked in the world her younger brothers. She had won a position of dignity and respect as a teacher, and had set a stamp never to be effaced on a large number of young minds. Footnote. Charles W., graduated at the Boston Latin School, 1832, died on the western coast of Africa in 1843, on board the ship he commanded. Joseph became a prosperous merchant in Boston. End footnote. Only it looked as though she had been self-slain in the process. She herself, however, looked back with no relentings on the physical and moral excesses of her past. The stake for which she had played seemed to her eminently an honorable one and to have been necessitated by the stern conditions thrust on her by her lot in life. A spirit of martyr exultation sustained her in the consciousness that she had never flinched till she fell helpless to the ground. Summing up, then, the impression left by a careful study of the life of Dorothea L. Dix to the age of thirty-three, it seems inevitable to say that it was at once a life devout and heroic in purpose, and a life marred by willful overstrain. A hectic fever had long been running in her blood, which raised to a perilous intensity the self-sacrificing impulses and the moral and religious ardor of her temperament. She had as yet learned no law of limit. Dr. Channing had put his finger on the very spot when he wrote her, The infirmity of which I warn you, though one of good minds, is an infirmity. Later, she was to learn a very different lesson. But it was a lesson that always came hard to her personally, tenderly and pitifully, as she was brought to recognize its import in the case of others. Still, even in the midst of these needful strictures, let it in simple justice be borne in mind that we are here dealing with a nature of extraordinary capacity, force, and fire, thus far set to tasks that gave no scope to its splendid energies. The mental and moral powers which, after once they had found their adequate field of action, were to sweep irresistibly before her the legislatures of more than twenty great states of the Union, which were again and again to carry by storm the Senate and House of Representatives of the Federal Congress in Washington, and which, in Europe, were to win a like triumph in the British Parliament, 
and to revolutionize the lunacy legislation of Scotland. Mental and moral powers of such an order had so far been set only to the petty task of teaching, disciplining, and stimulating twenty or thirty average children. It was like seeking to dwarf into the hull of a little launch a marine engine powerful enough to drive an ocean steamship in the teeth of the roughest gales across the Atlantic. End of chapter 4